has been a huge blessing to us. So all that were gathered together on Friday night and Saturday, we had a great, great uh, group of married couples that were there. And you're always working on things. You're always working on things. You never get to the point where you say, well, I've been married 40 years. I don't need to do anything. That'd be like a contractor saying, I've got every tool I need and there are no tools that can interest me anymore. You're always adding stuff. You're always working on stuff. And, and that's the way just about in everything, everything. Individuals, whether it's uh, sports, whether it's business, whether it's, you're always learning. And so you never get to the place where you don't need to work on some things. And marriage is something that you have to work and so this, this weekend, they did it in a way that was fun, interacting, uh, encouraging, uh, enlightening, and they provided some, some very, very good tools for us. And we appreciate them coming down and being with us. Really, it was a first-class job. The Thrive Committee, the SMART Committee, those that were there, uh, it was first-class. And I want to say how much I appreciate uh, all that you've done. It's worth every penny. It's worth every penny. Uh, ramifications of uh, some sessions and times together. Not, not only did we have sessions and what have you, we just had a good time together. It was fun fellowship and what have you. It's worth every dime. And so uh, I would encourage you, if you did not make it, if you think, well, that's really not in my wheelhouse, I don't need that. Next time it comes around, make sure you make every, every effort to be there. But we had a great turnout and a, just a great, great time. And I appreciate uh, their approach. Uh, they are very, very uh, spiritual in their approach. They're very educated, but education not does not always mean anything. It's got to be coupled with something. And so very motivated by uh, the Holy Ghost. They come from great, great backgrounds, and we are very, very happy to have them. Sister uh, King is working on her PhD and all she has left is the dissertation and so we acknowledge that and honor that uh, that's a big deal just for, for some of you that don't know we were having this discussion uh, yesterday a doctorate is that's pretty challenging to do uh, but a PhD is like like there's doctors and then there's above doctors a PhD you have to learn three languages just to get into a program. And so uh, that's not easy. <laughs> that's not easy. And typically, those individuals are going uh, for that particular education so that they can teach in an, a graduate level school. Uh, so my hat's off to her. I've dabbled in education enough to know that that's a really, really big deal. And so. We are praying that you will complete and finish that. And you were just outstanding yesterday. Great, great stuff. Brother Adam King, uh, her husband, they worked together. Very, very cool the way they did that. They talked together, worked together the entire time. And it's our honor and privilege to have him with us. Uh, he is uh, an individual that has a background in apologetics, which is a defense of the faith. Uh, and so, Brother and Sister King, thank you for coming. Let's stand together, and we want to invite him to this pulpit, and we want him to preach to us today. God bless you, Brother King. Can we turn that praise to God? Let's, Jesus, thank you, God, for your goodness. 
thank you, God, for your presence here. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You're so good to us. You're so good to us. Man, I, I completely enjoy the worship. Um, I really enjoyed being with a lot of you this weekend. It really was an honor to meet you, to glean your wisdom and friendship, and, and it was just such a good time. And, um, and uh, I give honor to Bishop Frost and Brother uh, Pastor Bradford and Brother Brock and Brother CJ and all the people I know. And um, it's, it's so good to be with all of you. We're, we're so thankful to be with you. So, man, I'm just excited. Are you excited for the Holy Ghost? And what a good time to be in church. And I believe this is Pentecost Sunday. So how cool to be in church on Pentecost Sunday celebrating the Holy Ghost where this Acts 238 message was preached. Thank you, Jesus. Can we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Brother Bradford was correct. I am an apologist. And today we're going to we're going to take a look at the resurrection. I thought that was appropriate for a resurrection. Well, it's not Resurrection Sunday, but this is the result of Resurrection Sunday, where the Holy Ghost was poured out. So, if you have 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 14. And it says, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. And then let's skip down to verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all of all men most miserable. Most miserable. You may be seated. You see, Paul here was making a radical claim. Um, one of my professors a long time ago read this passage to us and said, you're not going to find any other verse in any other holy book. Speaking of, you know, Islam and all the other uh, false religions. He says, because Paul said that if Christ hasn't been raised, then all that we're doing right now is, is useless. But if Christ is raised, then our sins are forgiven then we can get the Holy Ghost, then we can have power, then, then this Christian message is true. And that's, I think, what we're all concerned on about. We're concerned with truth. We want to live our life in a way that is true. And we want to hold, you know, have a worldview that is truth. So many people, um, it's, it, they believe that, you know, well, I believe this and you believe that. And they could have a whole bunch of things that maybe don't, don't bear the mark of truth, that don't correspond to reality. But today, I want to talk about the truth of the resurrection. I want to look at the truth of the resurrection. Did Jesus rise from the dead? This is what Paul was saying. He's saying this, this gospel and what we preach is true. It's historical. It actually happened. I think sometimes we live our life not in the power of his resurrection. We give lip service sometimes to the idea that, mm, 
yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. But does that power go from that idea into my life? Am I walking in the faith? Am I walking in that power of the resurrection? Because the resurrection informs everything. It means that we live again. It means that we live a life of victory. That means that Christ lives in you and that you are a man or woman of power. You see, it changes everything. It gives you individually purpose, meaning. It gives you an ultimate source of morality. It informs everything we do. So everything changes if the resurrection is true. I believe it's true. Today, I want to look at how do we know it's true? How can we share this truth? Because this is a powerful truth that we have. We not only have uh, God's spirit in us, we, don't, we don't not only have the Holy Ghost and miracles and signs and wonders that we have, but we also have, we have the truth that we can look back in history and say, this happened. This happened. This isn't just something that we, you know, wish upon a star that it happened. The book is filled with, with events that can be traced back and found in history. If you've been to Israel, you can look at the, the, where the temple used to stand. You can look at the Sea of Galilee. You see that these things are not just things in a black book that we carry around, but these things actually happened in history. And today I want to look at history. I want to look at um, how, how we can know that Jesus rose and how we could talk to people that maybe say, because we, we're, let's face it, we're living in a culture that says, that, uh, I mean, at least where I live, a lot of people say that Jesus didn't rise. And that's not what I believe at all. But how can we, how can we talk to them in a way that maybe shows them that what we're believing is truth? Is truth. Does that sound good? So, um, some people think maybe... Maybe looking at the history may, may downplay the role of faith in this. So I want to look at faith really quick and, and talk about this. Uh, a story that comes to mind uh, is the story of Charles Bondin. On June 30th of 18, uh, 1859, he was the first man to walk across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope without a line to hold him up. So, of course, if he falls off, right, he gets smashed on the rocks below or drowned. Not, I mean, it's, it'd be a great spectacle, right? So thousands of people, he announced that he was going to do this. Thousands of people went to go watch him fall. Well, maybe not, but watch, go watch him walk across this tightrope. And it was a massive tightrope. It was 160 feet above the raging waters, and he was going to walk over 1,000 feet. And so I think it was over 20,000 people watched and so the first couple of steps, you know, everybody was holding their breath, and he, then he just takes off across the, the tightrope. And people were like, wow, you know, this is pretty amazing. And, um, you know, the big roar when he reached the other side and came back. So it was pretty cool watching that happen. This is probably before, uh, you know, YouTube, where people do crazy stuff now. But, but this was, you know, big stuff here. And so what... The next days that followed, he started doing more and more stuff. See, he was really, really talented. The next day, uh, I think he took out, he took out uh, a stove and a chair and cooked himself an omelet in the middle of the in, in the middle of the uh, of the wire. 
Another day, he took a wheelbarrow and wheeled it out there with 350 pounds of cement. Took it out and brought it back. You know, every time he's kind of, you know, you know, do you think I could do this? And so the last time, he he was about to do his stunts. He had a big crowd watching, and um, he said, "Who believes that I can I could take a man in this wheelbarrow?" And so everybody's like, "Yeah," you know, they had seen him do it, right? So he turns to a guy who's like, "Yeah," you know, he turns to him and says, "Hey, do you believe I could do this?" And the guy's like, "Oh yeah," he's like, "Get in." There's a big difference between belief and faith. <laughs> I think that guy just figured that out. You see, belief is seeing, okay, yeah, I see, I see the evidence. This guy's talented. This guy can do this. Faith is, are you willing to get in? This is where I say I go from belief that into belief in. Are you willing to get in the wheelbarrow and trust your life with this thing? You know, God doesn't just want your leftovers. He doesn't just want your Sunday. He doesn't want your midweek. God wants your 100%. He wants our 100%. It's not like I can't be halfway in in the middle of the tightrope. This is something that we say, I am all in. And your life bears the mark of that with your efficacy in the world. When we work and we do, when you have the Spirit of God in you, and you're walking with that power and that belief, man, that's when we can, we can speak to mountains. So belief is the human confidence that when looking at the evidence, but faith is the result of that belief. Faith is an active trust. It's an action. It's not enough to say, I believe. I have faith. No, faith is doing. Faith is acting. Faith is being confident in who, whose you are. So, trust can't be conjured up or manufactured. Remember, trust is a relationship. You don't just walk, you know, just cho randomly choose a wife. You, you court and find out and learn to trust. And then you, then you, you know, part partner yourself with that person. So, interestingly, you know, biblical faith isn't believing against the evidence with, with that's what a lot of, uh, I think, the world would like to say. It's not believing against the evidence. Instead of faith is a kind of knowing that results in action. Listen to Jesus' words. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do... Uh, though ye believe me, not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me. You know, Jesus is saying, hey, look at, look at, what's, look, look at what's happening. Remember when John, John was questioning him. John had the, he was in jail, he's waiting for his execution. And he's like, hey, Jesus, where are you, man? <laughs> I need some help. And, and he sent his disciples to say, hey, are you the one? Or should we look for another? And and Jesus said, he said, you know, he said a couple of things, and then he just started doing miracles. And he said, you know, go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. See, Jesus has given us so many reasons to believe in his name and to believe and trust in what he does. But the thing is, outside of these walls, a lot of people, 
A lot of people's understanding of the Christian faith is a misunderstanding. They don't exactly understand what's going on. And the validity and the historicity of what we believe in. So today I wanted to look at the reasons. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready always to have an answer for every man that asketh a reason for the hope that is in you. And we're supposed to do that with meekness and fear, with gentleness and respect. So when people ask, remember, this is, this is Peter, right? We talk about Peter having the keys of the kingdom. We probably should listen up. He's saying, when people have a question for you about your faith, about why you believe what you believe, we should have an answer. We should have an answer. And that answer should be ready always, and we should be willing to give that at every single opportunity that people ask. And you know what's amazing is when you're looking for reasons and when you're looking for your opportunities to do that, you'll find them. It's amazing. You can get a haircut and be giving someone the gospel. Because if you're looking for it, you could turn any, any conversation almost into that. And I think that's what God's wanting us to do. That's what Peter's commanding us to do here. So today, let's look at Christianity in terms of a historian. Um, I'll give you kind of a, an analogy. I had a friend named Michelle when I was going to college. We were taking a lot of the, the same classes um, in, in philosophy. And um, Michelle was an atheist. And she told me, you know, she was vehemently that way. She, she hated Christianity. And so we had lots of discussions. She thought all that, all that Christianity was is just like this blind leap into nothingness. And I'm like, no, that's not at all what it is. Jesus did all these things. Jesus lived. Jesus gave, it, gave us the Holy Ghost. We have this experience. And so we had this dialogue, this ongoing dialogue. Um, but what she came from, she believed that the Bible was, was biased. But I said, you know, we can know a lot of things from history. And there's a lot of things and facts in history that we all can believe in. doesn't matter if people are biased. We can know things. For instance, um, Tacitus. Has anybody heard of Tacitus? He's a Greek historian a long time ago, way before our time. Tacitus was biased toward the Roman uh, to the, the Roman, you know, emperor and everything else. But we learn so much of history from Tacitus. Josephus, Josephus was a Jewish man that gave us so much understanding about first century Judaism. Did Josephus have a, an angle? Did he have a worldview? Of course, he wasn't Christian, he was Jewish. However, we know a lot from history from Josephus. And I started to explain these things to, to Michelle, and we started to have a discussion about, not that the Bible was just a book commanding you to believe in things, but that it was an actual an account of things that have happened in history. So um, what I'm going to present to you is called the minimal facts approach. And this is, um, this is, these are facts, and I have to be very clear on this, these are facts that both Christians and non-Christians believe are true. Both, both believe are true. That's really helpful when talking to someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection. Because I could just point to the people that know stuff, all the PhDs, and that believe that these facts are true. And we can get the truth of the, 
remember that we know the resurrection happened, regardless of whether people say it here. We know the Bible is truth. But when we're talking to people who don't share that belief, what do we come from? We do have our, our experience. But I can also point to the miracle signs and wonders that Jesus did that used to va validate himself. So, um, so, so the first part of this evidence, oh, by the way, so Gary Habermas is the, who discovered a lot of these arguments or facts that a lot of people believe. What he did is he took, he took thousands of scholarly articles and books and compiled them and then counted, hand counted, what, what they believed, what facts they believed were true. And so I'm going to only give you five, so everybody say thank God. <laughs> I'm going to give you five arguments that both Christians and non-Christians believe are true. Mostly, actually, they're secular. Mostly, they're, they're non-Christians. But they believe these facts from the Bible is true. So, the, so the, first, the first fact is that Jesus died on a cross. That fact, if you hear someone say that Jesus didn't die on a cross, there, there's probably nine, like maybe 0.01% of any scholar in the whole world that would say that Jesus didn't die on a cross. All scholars almost will say that Jesus died on a cross, and this can be known. This is why. This is why we know this. We know that Jesus was a real person. He was a miracle worker. He died in 30 AD or around there, plus or minus a few years. Um, but there are actually many extra-biblical sources that talk about Jesus. This is really helpful to people who don't believe. So if other people, like, why would Tacitus talk about Jesus? Um, so, so listen to what a skeptic, and remember this is a really, this is a God-hater person. His name is uh, skeptic John Dominic Cross and says this, Jesus' death by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can ever be. For if no follower of Jesus had written anything for 100 years after his crucifixion, we would still know about him from two authors not among his supporters. Their names are Joseph, uh, Flavius Josephus and Cornelius Tacitus. So no scholar anywhere, and I say that loosely, maybe there's one or two, would say that Jesus didn't die on a cross. So this is very, very helpful. Another extra biblical, um, so Tacitus said this, Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. The Talmud says, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshua was hanged. So we know that, that Jesus died by crucifixion. So that's the first one. So if you want to, I love to teach this. I'm a teacher. If you want to remember this, picture the cross in your head, okay? So picture the cross. The two people not among Jesus' supporters were Tacitus and the Talmud. Both of those look like a cross. The T looks like a cross. So Tacitus and the Talmud. I'm, I'm going to give you a mnemonic. So, fact two. Is this okay today? We want to share our faith, right? Fact two, about 75%, and probably more than that, believe that the tomb of Jesus was empty. And I have on really good, I'll, I'll read a, a, a quote in a second, but most 
Because if you say that the tomb was empty, you're pretty much saying that there was a resurrection. And so people reject the empty tomb because of their biases. And I'll, I'll, I'll quote that in a second. But I'm going to give you the facts of why scholars accept. Remember, these are not Christians. Why scholars accept the fact that the tomb was empty. So I want you to picture a jet, like a jet, you know, flying jet in your mind. The first, the first letter, it's an acronym. The first letter is J, the Jerusalem factor. Remember that Jesus died by, by crucifixion in Jerusalem. Maybe right, right outside the north gate. Who's been to Jerusalem? How many people have been to Jerusalem? If you haven't been, oh my goodness, that is an amazing trip. But when, when people talk about, um, you know, like, well, how, how could, think about this. How could we claim that there's an empty tomb with a body still in the tomb and it's a small town? Remember, Jesus was a super popular figure in Jerusalem. He was going around and healing people causing problems in the temple, or they, the, maybe the, the priests were causing problems for Jesus in the temple. But Jesus was known. The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea was on the Sanhedrin. So he was a very famous guy in Jerusalem. So a, a lot of people could easily find where Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was. Now, if I was claiming, hey, Jesus just rose from the dead. Remember that resurrection in Hebrew means that a body was dead and now is living. It's not a spiritual thing as much as it is a physical thing. This is the Hebrew mind. So the first thing, if I go in and say, hey, everybody, Jesus has risen, what did they do in the Bible account? They went and looked. Right? Because if there was a resurrection, I'm not going to find a body. So, because of that, a ton of people can know and just look. So, so the Christian faith would never get off the ground with Jesus' body still in the tomb. All right. Second, so the J, remember, Jerusalem factor. The next one is enemy testimony. The enemies of Jesus did not deny that Jesus' body was gone. Do you remember what they said, their, their only argument? They said, hey, here's some money. Tell everybody that what? That the disciples stole the body. Now, if I go to my teacher and say, I'm sorry, but the dog ate my homework. That's assuming that I'm not turning in my homework, right? Or some other excuse. Well, think about it. They said the disciples stole the body. Now, if think about it for a second. Wouldn't the, the Sanhedrin have every motivation to pull Jesus' body out of the tomb if they knew where it was and drag it through the streets and go, hey, 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 hey. Not risen. But they didn't, did they? Tomb was empty. So, Jerusalem factor, enemy testimony. The next one is the testimony of women. Now, look, I just taught a marriage seminar with you guys. I'm all for women. However, <laughs> first century Judaism was not super nice to women. They didn't have as many rights as they do now. So, who were the first people that the Gospels recorded to have discovered the body of Jesus? The women. 
Now, if I was a guy in the first century writing, and maybe I was, okay, say I was lying about the resurrection, I'm sure not going to put the women as the first witnesses. Let me quote a little bit of um, the shade that, uh, that the Talmud throws against women here. So, listen to this. Sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. It's kind of harsh, right? That's the Talmud. Um, listen to another part. But let not the levity of women be omitted on the account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the ignobility of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak truth, either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. That's the Talmud. So in other words, they're saying we don't trust women. So if I was going to concoct a story or make a, make a story to seem like Jesus rose from the dead, I'm sure not going to write that women were the ones that found Jesus first. I'm going to make something up like, you know, 150 of the most amazing brethren walked down to the tomb and discovered, right? I would have created something that's way more believable. But the fact that they mentioned women is almost like a, oh man, but they were the first ones. They were kind of believing first. You see what I mean? It's, it's like it actually happened, not like they were making it up. They're actually telling truth. And remember, what I'm giving you is what secular scholars believe, a lot of them. So how, how powerful to give that people an argument that it's like, it doesn't matter what me, a Christian, I'm not biased in saying this. People that don't believe in Christ say this. What do you do with this? What do you do with the gospel? You need to make a choice. Listen to what Oxford historian, remember Oxford, you don't get into Oxford just by being anybody. Oxford historian William Wan said this, all the his, strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb. And those scholars who reject it ought to recognize that they do so on some other ground than that of scientific history. He's saying that you're rejecting it not on what history says, but on your own ideas. So the, the tomb was empty. The next, the next evidence we have, the third fact, the disciples believed that they saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. Now, what caused that belief? Remember that the, the disciples were ready to lay down their life, the most precious thing you have, for their belief. You know, people say, well, I don't, you know, the disciples, the disciples could, you know, people die all the time for th something they believe is true. Like, we, you could think of, the, you know, the two towers and 9-11 coming down, people dying for their belief. But nobody makes, dies for their belief knowing that it's a lie. See, liars make poor martyrs. Liars make really poor martyrs. Because I'm not going to die for something I know is not true. And why would I, why would I just jump in and, and, and make a story? Can you imagine the disciples like, hey guys, what? Let's, uh, let's make up a story that Jesus rose from the dead that's going to cause all of our family to like hate us and the, all the temple people to like reject us and want to kill us. And what are you, who's in? Yeah, let's do it. It's not going to happen. 
These men believed what they were saying. They believed what they were preaching. They went all over the world. They, dis they disseminated all over the world, preaching the gospel. Thomas what went to India, like to Spain, to like so many, like people just spread out all over the world. They weren't together like in some like little cohort protecting their lie. They spread out because the message had to be spread to the world, not just kept isolated in Jerusalem. They were obeying the words of the master. So we know that the disciples believed, and a lot of scholars believe that they believed too. They, they don't think that they were lying, that they actually believed. So if you want to remember a mnemonic, think about be and a leaf. Be leaf. The disciples believed. I know it's funny, but people remember it that way. <laughs> Acts, facts four and five. Acts four and five is the conversion of Paul and James. Now, think about something. Read the Bible and watch for Jesus' family. Jesus' family. It's very well known that Jesus' family, except for Mary, are, and really there's not much talk of Joseph. Um, Jesus' brothers, uh, or family, his siblings, did not believe that Jesus was God until after the resurrection. Now, who here, I mean, what would it take for you? Who has a brother here? What would it take for you to believe that your brother was God? <laughs> a resurrection, right? <laughs> it's not, you're not going to just, you know, like, oh, yeah, Trevor's a great guy. Yeah, okay, let's, let's worship him. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I tell you what, I have a couple brothers, and neither one of them are God. I know it. <laughs> I have proof. The see, James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. J James ruled in a hostile environment. He was not like, it wasn't like an easy believism for him. He was facing the people he, you know, his friends, his family. But, G but James, uh, Jesus appeared to James, and James was converted. Isn't that amazing? The Lord's brother believed that Jesus was God. That's amazing. That's also a testament to Jesus' perfect character. Because he could believe that even after the resurrection. Like, that's, that's amazing. How did, how did James do that? That would have taken, that would have taken a resurrection. Now, historians want early testimony. Who's heard of the, the, like, the argument, well, the Bible was written a long time after the events happened, so we can't believe that, that the events in them were true. I've heard that a lot. The thing is, is that's not true. The events in the Bible, or the, the resurrection, was very, very close to, or it was written down very close to the events happening. And I'm going to give you proof right now for it. It's, it's really amazing. And all this stuff is in your Bible. It's pretty cool. So, Paul, I'm going to kind of switch to Paul here. Paul was an originally an enemy of the church. He was killing Christians. 
And then Paul goes from, like, remember, like, he's on the Sanhedrin's team, he's killing people, and then all of a sudden, boom, changed, stopped. Now he's a believer. Now he's one of Christianity's biggest advocates. Now he's, he's this learned scholar that's rocking Judaism to its core. What caused Paul's change? What caused his discipleship? So let's look at Paul's journey really quick. Um, liberal or conservative, a lot of people uh, date 1 Corinthians, uh, where, the, where we read our text, 1 Corinthians to about 55 AD, which is only 25 years after the events. Who can remember 25 years after, or 25 years ago, something happening? I think I can. I can remember 25 years ago. So that's not too long. You could still probably write about it, right? So even there, we have really good evidence for, I mean, goodness, we can all remember, not all, but everybody over maybe 30-something can remember lots of events from that time, especially resurrections. But just for comparison, to look at, um, to look at some historical writings, who's heard of Alexander the Great? Some people, right? Most of us. We've heard of Alexander the Great. Now, do you know that the earliest written source of Alexander the Great was about 400 years after his death? 400 years. You know what's amazing is that we teach Alexander the Great as fact in school, don't we? Maybe a little bias going on? And yet we have just 1 Corinthians. We're going to actually go back before 1 Corinthians was written. But 1 Corinthians was written only 25 years after the events, which is, which is amazing for ancient history. Now, remember that Paul claims that he saw Jesus. That he says in 1 Corinthians 9-1, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord. So he was known as a scholar. He was known as, and, but listen to this, skeptics love Paul. They might not agree with everything he's saying, but they don't think he's lying. That's really important. They, they love Paul. They'll accept almost everything he says if they know it's him. And so, but this is really good news. So skeptics say, like, and remember, I'm, I'm quoting a lot of them just so we can use kind of their argument against them, really. That they accept about seven books of Paul as being true, which is really great, and we can get in resurrection from just seven books. Um, probably the greatest skeptic right now in America, his name is Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman calls these books the undisputed books of Paul. The undisputed books of Paul. That's cool. Because if they're undisputed, then what it says, I can take and I can use. Understand? All right. So, so just so you know, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians, or 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philemon. So, but right, right now, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3. If you have your Bible, you might want to follow along. Because this is really an amazing passage. This passage in secular scholarship is probably the most looked at, debated uh, passage in your Bible. It's 1 Corinthians 3, and I'll explain why. 
The first, it says, for I delivered unto you first of that which I also received. This is Paul speaking. So I want to stop there. Paul is saying, I'm giving to you, the Corinthian church, first what I also received. So we ask, need to ask, where did Paul receive what he's talking about? Where is Paul getting this information? And Paul is about to give us something that he received, right? So remember that all good teachers pass on what they learn to other people. This is what Paul is about to do. He's about, about to give what he received from someone else. He's about to pass on a tradition. Now, scholars look at this passage, and I'm going to point it out in a second. There's a strange rhythm to this passage that we're about to read in 1 Corinthians 15. There's actually, it's, it's a poem or a song. So, listen to this. And that he was buried... And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas and of the twelve. And that he was seen up above five hundred brethren at once. Of whom the greater part remain until this present. But some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James. That's where Jesus appeared to him. Then all of the apostles. And last of all he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Did you hear the and that, and that, after that kind of rhythm there? That's a song that's been translated into English for us, but it would actually have a rhythm and a cadence to it if we would have heard it in the first century church. Now, where did Paul get this really cool song? Because remember, Paul said, you know, I get, I'm giving unto you first of that which I also received. So Paul received a tradition that he was about to give to the people at Corinth. So in the New Testament, there were dozens of little passages all over the place that talk about this, the, these cadences, or that have like, like kind of songs in them. And this is one of them. The reason is, about 70 to 90% of the people didn't read very well or at all. So if I were to get, like, want to teach you something to share the gospel to people, what, I mean, can you think of a better way to do that than a song? Who can remember the words to Amazing Grace? Yeah? And probably more than one verse, right? Easily. We can remember so many different like songs, if I just started naming songs. Now, this is how the first, the early church spread the gospel. They did it through a song. And this is actually the first song written. So when you're reading that little passage, that's the first bit of the New Testament that we have. That is the gospel. If you look at it, how beautiful. They're saying... All these people just saw Jesus. We have evidence, and you should believe on him too. So, Paul was passing on this creed. Now, where did Paul get it? He got it about four to six years after the crucifixion. According to critics, this is a consensus. So now, think about it. Jesus died at 30, and we have something that happened only of four to six years. That's how close this creed 
Jesus was risen, you know, died on a cross, was buried, rose again. 500 people saw him at once. The disciples saw him. He appeared to James, the Lord's brother. He appeared to Paul. This, all of this information was written down only four to, four to six years after the resurrection. Folks, that's amazing. And this discounts so much of what is popular, popularly you know, just broadcast. There's so many lies about the Christian faith that are propagated that are not true. This is what's true. We have really, really early testimony. But we can actually get closer. So the crucifixion happened at 30. Then Paul received this tradition about 4 to 6. Now you might say, where? Where did Paul receive it? Well, Paul received this tradition after he, remember he was changed on the road to Damascus, right? The Lord said, you know, who art thou, Jesus? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And then he goes into kind of hiding or, or like learning because he had to change his whole philosophy. He had to change his whole paradigm. His theology was just now completely turned on its head. So he stayed, he, he killed Christians for about three years, two to three years. And then he went, uh, then he had the Damascus Road experience. And then in Galatians 1.18, he says he went to Jerusalem to be with Peter and to James, the Lord's brother. Now, if you were Paul and you just had this crazy experience, wouldn't you, like, actually want to, you know, talk about the resurrection? This is where Paul would have received the resurrection and what we're talking about right now. So only a couple of years. So then we have to ask, when was first, when was that little song written? That song was written I'll, I'll read you a couple of, uh, of quotes. Larry Hurtado for Edinburgh University said that this song was written days after the Christ. One of the biggest skeptics, um, John, James Crossley, Morris Cassie, Bart Ehrman, all atheists, say that one to two years max, this, this declaration of Jesus' resurrection was preached this is what they were preaching. This is what the early church was, was proclaiming. They were saying, here's the evidence. Go look, go believe, make up your mind, take action, believe in Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Do you know that the best hypothesis that, that scholars have, or people have against the resurrection right now, and it's not even a very good one, is that all these people had separate hallucinations I'm not joking. That James was like maybe sitting down in his, in his, chilling in his, you know, house, and then all of a sudden, poof, he has a hallucination, and he sees Jesus, and he says, believe on me. That's not going to happen. Jesus, uh, you're not going to have 150 people or, or 500 brethren at once. You're not going to have them all have the same hallucination. That's not possible. So it just falls to pieces. So, that, so right now there's a resurgence in, in scholarship about believing, about this whole, whole um, uh, scholarship on the resurrection. People are beginning to shift. It's amazing. There, uh, there's one man that's a Christian. He says there's a renaissance right now in resurrection studies, not among Christians. I just want to share today, this is the power that you have in you. 
we're, we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth. We don't have to hold this in like, oh, we don't have good reasons for it. You have every reason for your faith. You have what's in you. You have the power of the Holy Ghost. You could point to the Bible and says this book has never been proven false. This book is truth. We can believe in the Holy Ghost. We can believe in what we've seen. We can believe in everything that the Bible says because it is truth. The Bible says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. I believe it today. I believe that today. And I believe you know it. And so when we're talking to people, don't hold back. Talk about your faith. Walk with integrity. They'll see that. They'll see the Holy Ghost. And give them reasons like, people, like Peter said. When they ask you for the reasons... Here are your reasons for your faith. You should believe in Jesus because of the resurrection, because of everything you've seen, the sun, the moon, the stars. We have every, every moment. You know, and I want you to think the resurrection informs everything. It gives you purpose. Think about it. If you didn't have Jesus, what would you believe in? What would be correct? What would be right? If you didn't have the resurrection, you know, that is the thing, the cornerstone that the disciples just pushed them into the whole world, into the whole world. So, like Paul, I want us to press to the mark, to the high calling of Jesus. Like, let's, let's push, let's be witnesses wherever we go, wherever we go. Wherever we go, when we, when we go into those places, let's, let's show the resurrection. Let's show Jesus. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm finished. But I want you to hear this. It's be the beautiful words from Paul. He says, I behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we all shall be changed. Are you ready for that day? Remember that Jesus is the first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits. He goes on to say, for this corruption, for, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. For when this corruption, corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that was written, death is swallowed up in victory. You know, isn't it amazing? We, we have that hope. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear death. Death is, uh, death has lost its sting. Death has lost its sting. And we can live in the power and the glory of the resurrection. Can we all stand and thank God for what he's given us? Can we just lift our hands right now? God, thank you for paying the price. Thank you, God, for paying the ultimate price, Jesus. Thank you, God, for paying, paving the road to salvation.
Thank you for taking away my sins and God giving me the hope of the resurrection. Give me hope of a beautiful tomorrow, God. Oh, Jesus, help us, God, in our witness. God, give us the power, Jesus. Help us, Jesus. Hallelujah, God. Hallelujah, God. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Thank you. Oh, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, and then he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land. Oh, what a day, a glorious day. about this song is it's talking about a day that's coming but an empty tomb informs today as much as it informs that day because an empty tomb says it's not dead but it's alive and the resurrected power of Jesus Christ can be applied to every circumstance every situation and every person it's the equalizer no matter what the critics may say, it's over. The equalizer is, it's an empty tomb. And there is power that's coming out of a grave that you can repent of your sins and be baptized in Jesus' name. And it can reside in your life through the powerment of the Holy Ghost. Praise God. Amen. Whatever you're facing today, you can bring, not to a tomb that's got a dead body in it, but you can bring it to a tomb and that's empty. There is no body there because there is resurrection power. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands and acknowledge and thank the Lord today on this day that we serve a living God. We don't serve a dead God, but we serve an alive and a living power and authority that can be applied to our lives. Somebody lift up your voice and praise the Lord together and magnify his great name. I praise you and thank you. I worship you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. 
Amen. Nowadays, it's very difficult to just hit people with the scriptures because they'll just totally reject it. Even with truth, they'll just reject it. If you say, well, the truth is the Bible, they'll reject it. But when you start saying, well, then what do you define as truth? How do you define truth? What is the repository of your truth? What are you using? Well, I've just got this hodgepodge thing. Well, I'm not going to follow that. I'm going to trust the Bible because the Bible is something that holds everything together. And I can stand on it. It's a foundation. It fits and it works. But all of you got opinions. So I'm not going to let you influence me because I feel like I've got a better understanding of what truth is. And what Brother King gave to us today is the same kind of understanding. That if someone just wants to reject it, you've got a lot of evidence of people saying, these things are valid. And based on these things, you couple it together. You have something that does not make you tuck your head and be ashamed, but makes you lift your head and say, there's a great God and Savior, one that died for us, was crucified, that most everybody believes placed in a tomb and he is risen and there's resurrection power and those disciples that walked away from Jesus and questioned everything become a powerhouse preaching a message of salvation because of that empty tomb and we stand here in 2019 with the same kind of tenacity that says he's not dead but he is alive praise God he's alive Savior we thank you and praise you and worship you Thank you for very, very inspiring words to us today that should build our faith and encourage and strengthen us and anchor us in a world of, of much, much confusion and chaos. We thank you for your truth, for it's the truth that sets us free.